The Conspiracy Theory of History, revisited by Murray N. Rothbard, any time that a hard-nosed analysis is put forth of who our rulers are, of how their political and economic interests interlock, it is invariably denounced by establishment liberals and conservatives, and even by many libertarians, as a conspiracy theory of history, paranoid, economic, determinist, and even Marxist. These smear labels are applied across the board, even though such realistic analysis can and have been made from any and all parts of the economic spectrum, from the John Burke Society to the Communist Party. The mo most common label is conspiracy theorist, almost always leveled as a hostile epithet rather than adopted by the conspiracy theorist himself. It is no wonder that usually these realistic analyses are spelled out by various extremists who are outside the establishment consensus, for it is vital to the continued rule of the state apparatus that it have legitimacy and even sanctity in the eyes of the public. And it is vital to that sanctity that our politicians and bureaucrats be deemed to be disembodied spirits solely devoted to the public good. Once let the cat out of the bag that these spirits are all too often grounded in the solid earth of advancing a set of economic interests through use of the state, and the basic mystique of government begins to collapse. Let us take an easy example. Suppose we find that Congress has passed a law raising the steel tariff or imposing import quotas on steel. Surely only a moron will fail to realize that the tariff or quota was passed at the behest of lobbyists from the domestic steel industry anxious to keep out efficient foreign competitors. No one would level a charge of conspiracy theorist against such a conclusion. But what the conspiracy theorist is doing is simply to extend his analysis to more complex measures of government, say to public works projects, the establishment of the ICC, the creation of the Federal Reserve System, or the entry of the United States into war. In each of these cases, the conspiracy theorist asks himself the question, Cu bono? Who benefits from this measure? If he finds that measure A benefits X and Y, his next step is to investigate the hypothesis, did X and Y in fact lobby or exert pressure for the passage of measure A? In short, did X and Y realize that they would benefit and act accordingly? Far from being a paranoid or a determinist, the conspiracy analyst is a praxeologist. That is, he believes that people act purposefully, that they make conscious choices to employ means in order to arrive at goals. Hence, if a steel tariff is passed, he assumes that the steel industry lobbied for it. If a public works project is created, he hypothesizes that 
it was promoted by an alliance of construction firms and unions who enjoyed public works contracts, the bureaucrats who expanded their jobs and incomes. It is the opponents of conspiracy analysis who profess to believe that all events, at least in government, are random and unplanned, and that therefore people do not engage in purposeful choice and planning. There are, of course, good conspiracy analysts and bad conspiracy analysts, just as there are good and bad historians or practitioners of any discipline. The bad conspiracy analyst tends to make two kinds of mistakes, which indeed leave him open to the establishment charges of paranoia. First, he stops with the cui bono. If measure A benefits X and Y, he simply concludes that, therefore, X and Y were responsible. He fails to realize that this is just a hypothesis and must be verified by finding out whether or not X and Y really did so. Perhaps the wackiest example of this was the British journalist Douglas Reed, who, seeing that the result of Hitler's policies was the destruction of Germany, concluded, without further evidence, that therefore Hitler was a conscious agent of external forces who deliberately set out to ruin Germany. Secondly, the bad conspiracy analyst seems to have a compulsion to wrap up all the conspiracies, all the bad guys power blocks into one giant conspiracy instead of seeing that there are several power blocks trying to gain control of government, sometimes in conflict and sometimes in alliance. He has to assume, again, without evidence, that a small group of men controls them all and only seems to send them into conflict. These reflections are prompted by the almost blatant fact so blatant as to be remarked by the major news weeklies that virtually the entire top leadership of the new Carter administration, from Carter and Mondale on down, are members of the small, semi-secret trilateral commission founded by David Rockefeller in 1973 to propose policies for the United States, Western Europe, and Japan, and or members of the board of the Rockefeller Foundation. The rest are tied in with Atlanta corporate interests, and especially the Coca-Cola Company, Georgia's major corporation. Well, how do we look at this? Do we say that David Rockefeller's prodigious efforts on behalf of certain statist public policies are merely a reflection of unfocused altruism? Or is their pursuit of economic interest involved? Was Jimmy Carter named a member of the Trilateral Commission as soon as it was founded because David Rockefeller and the others wanted to hear the wisdom of an obscure Georgia governor, or was he plucked out of obscurity and made president by their support? Was J. Paul Austin, head of Coca-Cola, as an earlier supporter of Jimmy Carter, merely out of concern for the common good? Were the trilateralists and Rockefeller Foundation and Coca-Cola people chosen by Carter simply because he felt that they were the ablest possible people for the job? If so, it's a coincidence that boggles the mind. Or are there more sinister political economic interests involved? 
I submit that the naives who stubbornly refuse to examine the interplay of political and economic interest in government are tossing away an essential tool for analyzing the world in which we live. The limits of debate in this country are, 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 are established before the debate even begins, and everyone else is marginalized. They're made to seem either to be communists or some sort of disloyal person, a kook, there's a word, and now it's conspiracy. See, they've made that something that, that, is, that is, uh, sh should not be even entertained for a minute, that powerful people might get together and have a plan. Doesn't happen. You're a kook. You're a conspiracy buff.